Good morning again. Good to see the Lord working through the fries and then uh, that we get to be here for uh, the baptism of Sophia and we get to see these two young girls just making this powerful statement that they uh, want to die for themselves and to live for Christ. Kids go to Children's Church. There you go. But it's just awesome to see um, the, these two young girls wanting to, to live their lives for Christ. And uh, in, the, in the world today, that's not what the world is telling us to do. We, we live in a society that is always telling us that we should uh, live for ourselves, that we should have things our own way, that you should pursue your happiness, that you should be proud of who you are, that you should pursue your greatness and make a name for yourself. But the way of the Lord is different. The way of the Lord is um, greatness for the Lord is not greatness for the world. Great people for the world are those who are proud, are those who are all, all about themselves and their accomplishments. But in the eyes of the Lord, the humble, the selfless, those are the great ones. And when we talk about greatness, who, who comes to your mind? Who, uh, when, you, when you think about the greatest person who has ever existed in the history of the world, who do you think about? Who is the first person that comes to your mind? Except for Jesus, besides Jesus, because he wins every contest. So besides Jesus, who is the, the most important person in history that you can think about? Maybe it's Moses. Maybe it's um, Paul. Maybe it's Pastor Nate that he can sing and do a baptism and announcements all in one service. And he wanted to come up here and preach, but I got here before he had time to get dry, so he lost that one. <laughs> but um, we all have an idea of what greatness should look like. But what is Jesus telling us about what greatness really is? So in Luke 7:28, we're not going to turn there right now, but in Luke 7:28. Jesus says that there is no greater person than John the Baptist. What is so important about John, John the Baptist? What's so great about, about John the, the Baptist that Jesus would say that he is the greatest man that has ever existed? See, greatness in, in our eyes, they are not the same as greatness in God's eyes. We measure greatness by accomplishments, but God, for God, greatness is selflessly serving. And that's what we see in John's life. He, he was a selfless servant. And we, we see here that, that John is the greatest because he was willing to be the smallest. He was, uh, he was willing to, to serve the Lord and to, to live a life of service. And today we're going to talk about this guy. We're going to talk about John, this, this servant. And we're, we're going to talk about his family and his birth and how all this happened. So, but, but first let, let's pray and then we'll go into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open our Bibles and we read the words in these pages, may we understand that these words come from you, that they might come to our hearts and to our minds with authority. Help us to grasp the heights of our, your plans for us and help us to be in awe of who you are, of your greatness and your love. Help us to respond to this word with joyful obedience. Speak to us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text today is in Luke 1. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 855. So um, that, that's the text that we're going to be primarily on. But our story actually begins in Malachi, Malachi 3 and 4. So that's the, in the end of the Old Testament. If you're using the, the Pew Bibles, that's page 802. So um, and I, I know that you were wondering about Malachi this morning when you woke up. You were like, what about Malachi? So I thought that I would talk about that first. So see, uh, all of history is about Jesus. God is a sovereign God who has control over all things, and he's working everything to accomplish his plan of redemption through Jesus. And one of the ways that we see this is through this uh, prophetic promises. Uh, God is revealing to his people something about what he's going to do. And here in Malachi, we see one of those promises. Uh, th and this is the final word of God before 
uh, we pick up the story in Luke before we get to the New Testament. So uh, Malachi was written about 400 years before Jesus was born. And, and here, this is what God is saying here in Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here the Lord is saying, I am coming, but before I come, I'm going to send a messenger. And he makes this promise that this messenger messenger will come before him. And right after that, the Lord will come to his people. But after that that prophecy was given, 400 years had passed. A long, long time. And during those 400 years, no book of the Bible was written. No prophet spoke. One generation after the other, waiting for the, the fulfillment of these promises, and nothing happens. And one generation after the other becomes a little more cold, a little more hard-hearted. And there is just silence, silence for 400 years. And, and this is a long time. And they are wondering, will this come true? Will God fulfill His promise? And then when we go to Luke 1, Luke 1, 5, this is, what, this is the time when these next things are happening. 400 years after this promise, this promise and 400 years of silence, this is what happens here. So Luke 1, 5. In the days of Herod, the king of the Jews. So this is very interesting here. The king of the Jews. Who else had that title? That was a title that was later on mockingly given to Jesus when he, he was dying at the cross. So... Uh, this guy, Herod, he comes from the line of Esau. So do you guys remember the, the story of Jacob and Esau? And they were two brothers that were always fighting. And out of them came two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. And again, they were always fighting. There was a lot of conflict there. And then this all culminates here in, uh, in Herod, because Herod, he was an Edomite. Herod, the Edomite king, trying to kill Jesus, the true Israel. So this all comes to this point in history when Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And he, he demands that all firstborn sons in the land will be killed. Because he heard that Jesus was born, and he heard that Jesus would be the king of the Jews, and he didn't want anyone to take, to take his place. So he had all, all the firstborn uh, boys be killed at that time. So this is not a great time for Israel. This is not a great time for the people of God. It's a time of great success for Rome, and, and uh, Rome is ruling over Israel, and they have Herod as their puppet king ruling over that part of the land. And, uh, and Herod, he was, he was a, a brilliant guy. He was uh, a, a, one of the best engineers in history. He was extremely rich, and he was famous. Uh, and he even invented qu- quick-dry cement that he used to build a harbor so that hundreds of ships could come in and out and could take cargo out and bring money in so that he would be even more famous and even more rich. This guy was brilliant, but he was also evil. So much so that he he murdered his own wife and he murdered two of his sons because they were threatening to take his place. This was a a brilliant guy, but a very evil guy as well. Uh, And and the the previous temple that they had in, in Israel at that time it was destroyed, so Herod, he built a new temple. And he built a temple that was big and beautiful. And he built his palace right next to the temple. Because he, he thought so much of himself that the only person that he would allow to be his neighbor was God. That's how much this guy thought of himself. He even put, he even put his logo on each one of the stones that he used in, in the temple. This was a, a, a person that was very self-centered. But even though Herod was great in the eyes of the world and he was famous and everybody knew about him, he was not great in the eyes of God. And this story that we are going to read today, it's not about Herod. He's just here so that we'll know when this happened. This story is about ordinary people. It's about people who at that time were considered nobodies, that nobody really cared about them. And ultimately this story is about Jesus the greatest servant and the true king. 
And this story, uh, th- th- this story is about those who are great in the kingdom of God, not the great in the kingdoms of the world. But how, how can we know who is great in the kingdom of God? How can we measure that? So uh, Jesus makes it very clear for us. So Jesus said in, in Matthew 33, uh, 23, 11, he said, uh, those who are great in God's kingdom are the servants. So that's how we know who is great before God, the servants. Herod, he wanted to be great in the eyes of men. But greatness in the eyes of men leads to sinful pride. And that's what happened to Herod. And that's what can happen to each one of us too. If we live our lives for the approval of men, if we live our lives pursuing greatness before men and acknowledgement before men, that will lead us to sinful pride. The same way, the same thing that happened to Herod. And now Herod is dead and nobody, nobody really cares about him. He's just someone in history. Nobody really cares about what Herod did that much anymore. But these nobodies that we'll read about, they were greatly used by God. They were servants that were greatly used by God to accomplish His plan of redemption. If you want to be forgotten, pursue your own greatness. But if you want to be great before God, be a servant. And that's what really matters. It's not being great before people. It's being great before God. And the way for us to to do that is by being selfless servants. So back to, to Luke 1, 5. We read here. There was a priest named Zechariah of the, of the division of Abijah, Abijah, Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So here we have Zechariah and Elizabeth in the eyes of the world, Mr. and Mrs. Nobody, but in the eyes of God, righteous. Zechariah, he, he was the equivalent today to a, a small town uh, pastor, a small country, country road pastor. He, he was not a famous priest. He was a priest in a little town. And in little towns at that time, they were very little. They had around... 50 to 100 people. So it was a town of about 100 people living in that town. And he was at a synagogue that had around 20 people showing up. So he wasn't a very famous and popular guy. So uh, if you think about it, if you, th- if you go to a very small town, mainly farmers, and you see this little church that sits 50 people, and half, people, half of the people show up, uh, and there is this pastor that is the simple guy with his wife, and, and they're both uh, serving there. That's who they are, simple people, people who are just regular people. But they are in the Bible. They made it to the Bible, and that's amazing. And, and why did they make it to the Bible? Because they loved God. They served God. They walked with God. They weren't concerned with their, their own greatness, but they were concerned with glorifying the true great one, God. And that's what the Lord is calling us to do. He's calling us to, to uh, He's calling you to be faithful, not to be great. That's what He's calling all of us to be, to be faithful to Him, to walk with Him, to love Him, and not to be concerned with our own greatness. And here's what we hear about this couple. Verse 7, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So number one, they were advanced in years. They were old. So uh, how old were they? Too old to have, to have kids. So they were around, uh, they were in their 60s, maybe their 70s, around that age. And number two, they were barren. That means that they couldn't have children. Emotionally, that is devastating. That is sad. But financially, at that time, that was very dangerous. Because Unlike today, they, uh, they didn't have retirement. There was no hospice. There, w- there was no care centers. So if you got old, your sons would take care of you. Your children, they were responsible for taking care of you financially and t- taking care of your needs. So no sons means great danger for them. That was a very dangerous position for them to be. And then at that time, people assumed that if something, ha- if something bad happened to you, 
that must have been because you did something wrong. And that's completely different than today. We never do that, right? We never assume that. So they thought that the reason why they didn't have kids was because they must have done something really bad to deserve that. So they would shame them, and they would, they would say, you know, she's, she's a priest's wife, but they can't have kids, so I wonder what they did. I wonder if they did something to deserve that. But they were, we read here, they, they were barren, not because they did something. They were righteous before God. So when you read, when you read barren here, think disappointment, danger, poverty, shame before people, reproach, being excluded, being a second-class person. They were already no big deal, and now they don't even have a son to take care of them when they get old and to, uh, to uh, carry their name forward. They are nobodies, and they will die, and they will be forgotten. And that's who they are. And, and that's what they, do. they did not do. This is what they did not do. They didn't respond to this situation with bitterness. They didn't respond to the situation with despair. They were not angry at God. They didn't turn their backs on God. Because, and why did they not do that? I think they didn't do that because having a kid wasn't the most important thing in their lives. Having a child wasn't their greatest treasure. Security, financial security, wasn't their greatest treasure. Approval wasn't their greatest treasure. That's not the most important thing for them. Their greatest treasure was God. And they already had God. So they could deal with this because they already had what they needed. And here is what they did do. They worshipped God. They walked with God. They accepted His providence in His life. God, You open and You close the womb. If You give us a baby, that would be wonderful. We would love to be parents. But if not, we are still going to love You and walk with You. And they did. They walked with God. They, they worshipped God. They were there praying and serving God. And even though they were very disappointed, they still had joy. And they knew that in God's providence, even disappointments can be used for good. And that's very important that we know that in God's providence, even our disappointments can be used for good, for us to grow, for us to be shaped to His likeness, for us to accomplish His purpose in our lives. And because of this very hard thing that they experienced, they were able to glorify God in a very specific way. And this is what we see in their lives. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of, of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So what was he doing here? So this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. To go to, for you as a priest at that time, to go to the temple was probably something that you would do once in your life. So this was a very important uh, situation here. So at that time they had 18,000 priests. So that's a lot of priests. And they, they cannot go all at the same time to the temple. Sometimes we, we think that they just had a few priests that were, they were there all the time, but they had a lot of priests. So they had 18,000 priests. And those 18,000 priests, they were divided in 24 groups. And each group had 750 men. So those groups, they would go to, their, to Jerusalem once, uh, for one week, twice a, twice a year. And they would minister at the temple. And they would all get together and they would roll dice to see who gets to go in the temple. Who gets to do the big job. So uh, it was a very important job for them to do, and just a few of them would get to do that. So for many years, Zechariah, he would go to the temple, he would go up to Jerusalem, take the trip, and they would roll the dice. Loser, 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 loser. He's an old guy, so he's been there a lot of times, and he's been the loser a lot of times. He never gets picked, just like you in gym class. You never get picked. So he never gets picked, just this older guy, and now... He's wondering, when will I ever get picked? Will I ever get to do this? And then one day, this old man comes, and they roll the dice, 
and they tell him, Zechariah, it's your turn. You get to go in. It's his big day. He gets to go in the temple. Something that he was waiting for his whole life. So then he goes in and he closes his eyes and he puts the incense there and he prays. And we don't know exactly what he prayed for. But maybe he prays for the people of God. He prays that God would save them from their sins. He prays that he would save them from their oppressor. He prays that he would heal them. That he would bless them. That he would be with them. Maybe that he would deliver them from Herod and give them a good king. And maybe he prays for a son. Is it too late for him to ask? Or maybe he doesn't even remember that anymore. He doesn't even remember that prayer for a child anymore. Because they prayed for that when they were in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, and no child was coming, their 50s, their 60s. And that's something that they don't even pray for anymore. And it's forgotten in the past. And as he's there, as the, the incense is going up, his prayer is also going up. And his prayer goes up to the ear of God. He goes up to the ear of a God who delights to listen to the prayer of his children. And his prayer is sweeter than the, than the incense that he's burning. And he finishes his prayer. He opens his eyes. And then this is what happens. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. See, he, he was scared because angels, they're not these cute figures that we have in our minds when you think about angels. They were these powerful creatures that were messengers of God. So verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, which means God is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. This is good. Herod, the great, the king that everybody thinks is great, then the angel comes and says, nope, not really. John will be great. Herod, he will make more money. He will build more buildings. He will have more followers. But he won't give his life to humbly serve God. And your son will. And he will be the great one here. Verse 15. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So this child in Elizabeth's womb, he has a name, and his name is John. Not only does he have a name, but he's also filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. I don't know how you could get a better, a better case for personhood than named by God, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, set apart for ministry, still in the belly. That's a good, a good case for personhood. This is a person here. And that seems like, a, 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 and, and God knows, uh, God, God is talking this way because God knows the baby from the womb. God names the baby from the womb. God can even sovereignly elect and predestine the baby from the womb. And we live in a society that doesn't think like that, where babies, are, babies in the womb are a rejected class. They're systematically murdered, ignored, forgotten, a baby in the womb is literally a no-body. Sometimes it's not even acknowledged that they have a body. They're just tissue. They're literally, literally no-bodies in our society. But here we see a God who loves to use no-bodies. Even a baby in the womb. A God that calls this baby great. In the millions of babies in our generation that our generation is killing might be forgotten by the world. They might be forgotten and nobody knows who they are, nobody knows their names and their faces. But how amazing it is to know that God remembers them. That God can love them. He can give them a name. And He can know them. Look, the Bible says that we are created in God's image. 
all of us, in the womb or out of the womb, we all are created in God's image. And that means that we are created to be visible representatives of an invisible God. So uh, what does that mean, to be visible representatives of an invisible God? Think about the American flag. The American flag, it's not only a cool design with nice colors that you get to wear on 4th of July. That's not only what that is. The, the American flag is a visible symbol of a whole nation. So when, when someone burns a flag in public, they are making a, a statement. They are, they are making a statement that they, they are attacking the nation as a whole. They are attacking something about the nation. It's not that they just don't like the design. They are referring to the whole nation. So when we abuse, when we murder, when we hate people created in the image of God, in the womb or not, we are attacking the Creator. Every, every kind of attack against the value of human life is an attack against the Creator that that human life represents. So, and, and you know, Bree and I, we have friends that have recently gone through a miscarriage, and that was devastating for them. Um, and they said that one of the thoughts that helped them to, to carry on after that was to know that, that God knows that child, that God loves that child, that uh, He calls that child by name, that that child has value for God. So just thinking about that, how loving is our God that He loves the least of those in our society, that He cares about them, and He cares about each one of us. It doesn't matter how small and insignificant we are, He loves and He cares about each one of us. And here God is calling this baby for a very special mission. On verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And there is Malachi, verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here he's saying that this child is a child that's going to uh, end this conflict between people. And he's going to be similar to the, to the prophet Elijah. And he, uh, th- this promise that was done, that was made uh, 400 years ago, is finally coming to fruition. And here we see how amazing God, God's providence is. That he, God is taking care of every little detail. Here the name Zechariah means, Lord, the Lord remembers. That's the meaning of Zechariah. The Lord remembers. Each time that Zechariah was praying for a son, even if Zechariah has forgotten those prayers, the Lord hears and the Lord remembers. And there's another thing here that the Lord remembers. The name Elizabeth, it means God's oath or God's promise. So the Lord remembers His promise. He remembers the promise that He made to Malachi 400 years ago that he would send someone to prepare, to prepare the way for the Lord. He remembers that, and he keeps that promise. Especially the promise that he would come to be with his people, that the Lord himself would come to save his people. He remembers his promises and he keeps them. So that's something that we should never forget about our God, that the Lord remembers his oath, he remembers his promises, and he listens to our prayers. That's who our God is. Our God doesn't forget. We forget things. We, I forget things all the time. My memory is terrible. I have to write down stuff all the time on sticky notes and to-do lists. My memory is not the, the best. But God never forgets anything. And God does not get distracted. He's always... He always remembers His promises. And it's beautiful to know that the only time that the Bible talks about God forgetting something, it's not that He really, really forgets something, but uh, that He remembers our sins no more. Even though He doesn't forget things, He says that He remembers our sins no more. How beautiful that is. He remembers all of His promises in His Word, even if you don't remember them. 
and He keeps them. And look who God is using here to answer this prayer and to keep His promise. An old couple and a baby in, their, in her womb. This is amazing, who the Lord is using here. And why is, he, why is God doing that? He's using these people because God rejoices in using the nobodies. God rejoices in using people that you would have never expect would be used by God to do something like this. And why is he doing that? Why does he like to do that? He, he, he uses people like this because when he does these awesome things, these extraordinary things, we will know that these things were not done by these people because they were awesome, because they were accomplished, because they were well-educated and popular. No, it's not because of them. It's because of their God. These are ordinary people, but they have an extraordinary God that can do a lot of things through them. And He is the great one. He is the one that we should be looking at. And He is the one that makes things happen. What a joy to know that God loves to use you and me to accomplish His plan. God loves to use you to glorify Him, to tell people about Him, to live a life that shows people His grace. We can be used to do that. And after this, Zechariah, uh, after, after all this happens, he sees an angel, and the angel talks to him, and this is going to happen. He should have just stayed quiet and not said, not said anything. He should, he should have just gone, wow, and then go home after that. Don't say anything. But instead, instead of doing that, he decides to say something. So that's what he says. In Ze- uh, verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Well, let's review. You've been asking for decades for a baby. Uh, you want the dice thing. You, uh, you are in the presence of God. You have a, an angel before you. What else do you need to get this message? And he's like, but how do I know? How do I know? See, we laugh at this guy. We think it's stupid that he's doing this. But how many times have we done the same thing when we see God's Word? How many times have we had the same reaction? The Bible says something and you're like, but how do I know? You know, the Bible says your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Now live for God. Are you sure? And the Bible says Jesus is coming back. And you're like, but how do I know? And the Bible says God is taking care of everything. Just be still and trust in Him. But how, how do I really know? We, we are in, a, in, in a kind of the same position. We have God's Word before us, and we are doubting God's Word. The same thing that He's doing here. He has a messenger of God before Him, and He's doubting God. And we, so many times, we do the same thing. And instead of being quiet and being still, being still and, and resting and trusting in God, we decide to speak. Why? How can I know that? So he says, how, can I, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And then the angel, the angel is like, really? Do you really know that that's going to keep God from doing what he wants to do? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. There, there are only two named angels in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. If you get one of those two, it's a big day for you. So here, <laughs> a big day for him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Is that enough for you? And I, say, I will stand to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You know, sometimes, like, we can, we can learn with him. Sometimes we don't need to say anything. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and wait. When we receive God's word, sometimes we just need to trust and wait. I don't know when this is going to happen. I'm freaking out. I don't know what God is up to. Just wait and trust in God. God is telling us to to pray, to bring our requests to Him 
and to trust in Him and to trust Him with those things, to trust Him with them. But instead what we do is that we don't pray and we, we don't pray because we are too busy to pray and we have too many things to do. And then we keep talking about how anxious we are. We keep talking about how we don't know what God's going to do and how worried we are about the situation. How can we learn with this bad example here then? Pray, be still, and rest in the Lord. This is what we need to do. Sometimes, the hard, and that, sometimes that's the hardest thing that we need to do. It sounds simple. Just trust in the Lord. Pray and trust in the Lord. That's all you need to do. That easy. But sometimes that's the hardest thing that we need to learn to do. To trust in the Lord. To rest and trust that He knows what He's doing. And we, we would never admit this to ourselves, but a lot of times we act like we don't need God. You know, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to rest. Who will do this right if I don't do it? And we, need it, we, we think it's up to us that we need to go and do something. Just do something. And sometimes we think that we, uh, we, we act like we know better than God. You know, I, I asked God to do this, and this is not happening. And I don't really know what God's up to, that He's taking so long to do this. We, we would never say this, but a lot of times that's what's in our hearts. And that's what we need to do. We need to be still and rest in the Lord. Verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay at the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. You know, this must have been nice for Elizabeth. For nine months now, she wins every argument. She, she can tell him whatever she wants and she will not hear anything back. So at least someone is benefiting from this. Verse 23. And when his time of service has, has ended, was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, and look at what she says here, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. All the shame, all the looks, all the condemnation that she got from people, that she endured for many years, are all gone. What a day. The idea of having a terrible future, of dying in poverty and, and misery, no more. The Lord took away her reproach. And I think it's impossible for us to read this and not think about the day when the Lord took away our reproach. But different than her reproach, that was a reproach that he didn't, she didn't earn, our reproach, a, repro a reproach that we deserved before God. You see, we all here, we all have sinned. We all have attacked God in, in different ways. And we all deserve condemnation, separation from God, death, eternal misery, reproach. But the Lord came and took away our reproach and put it on His Son. And if you are saved, if the Lord took away your reproach, never stop praising God for that. Never stop worshiping God for taking away your reproach. And if you are not saved, if you have not experienced God taking away that from you, Jesus is able to come to you and to save you and to take away your reproach. Trust in Him. And stop living for your own greatness. And begin to live for Him as a humble servant. God is able to take away your reproach. And look at how Elizabeth responds to this. God, God blesses her and answers her prayer. And she's going to be a mom of a prophet that will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And she praises God for this. What is she doing now? She's praising God. She's saying, the Lord took away my reproach. 
she's praising God because he blessed her. What a beautiful picture here. And, and what was she doing before that? She was praising God. What a, what a beautiful picture that we have of Elizabeth here. A woman that praises God when she's barren, when she, when she has this reproach among people, when, when she is rejected. And a woman that praises God when she is blessed. It would be so much easier for her to complain about her situation before and to, be, to feel sorry for herself because she cannot have a baby and she will die in misery and people think that she's a sinner. But she was praising God at that time. And it would be easy for her now to just brag about this and just to tell people that uh, she, she's going to be a mom at age 60 and she's going to be a mom of a prophet that's going to prepare the way for the Lord and that she's going to be in the Bible and she, she should just go tell all those ladies that were looking at her that now she's going to be at the Bible, in the Bible, and they are not. But instead, she's quiet for five months, just praising God and worshiping God for doing this. And like Elizabeth, that's what we are called to do as well. Worship the, God, the Lord who takes away your reproach and fills you with the Holy Spirit. He did that for you. Worship Him now. Live a life of worship with your attitudes, with your word, with your words, with everything that you do. Live a life for His glory. And now that's how we'll see everyone responding here. So let, let's skip to verse 39. Let's go to verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town to, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. In her womb. So here we see even John as a baby in the womb, worshiping Jesus, leaping for joy when he sees Jesus around. Is there anything keeping you from worshiping Jesus? Here we have a baby in the womb that cannot move, that cannot do anything, and he's worshiping Jesus. We shouldn't let things keeping us from worshiping Jesus. Let the joy of being saved by Christ, of being part of his plan to lead you to worship in any situation. Then verse uh, 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Oh, wait, let's go back to verse 20, uh, 42. And she exclamated with joy, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This is the first time here in this gospel that someone refers to Jesus as Lord. This is a very powerful statement for her to say that, that Jesus is Lord. Not Herod, not the things of the world. Jesus is my Lord. And then she says, the baby in the womb leaped for joy. So, and then uh, there is also something very special here. It says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we see two people filled with the Holy Spirit. John and Elizabeth were both filled with the Holy Spirit. So you, see, you read that and you wonder, what does that mean? That you were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what we see here throughout the New Testament is that when you get saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit living in you and, leading and, and helping you to, to praise God, to worship God with your life, to produce good fruit in your life. So this, what they are doing, is because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's again God producing good fruit in them. God leading them to worship. So that's what they're doing. They, they are praising God. God is at work here and He's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. He's preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. And what do they do about that? They believe His Word. They trust Him. They rejoice. And they proclaim it. And they praise God. What is our response when we receive God's word. How do we react to that? They are rejoicing and proclaiming and, and trusting and believing. 
And that's what we should do too when we, when we receive God's word. Keep reading. Uh, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they, uh, and they, would, have called them, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But the mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. It's just amazing here how some things never change. Whenever you have a, whenever you have a kid, a lot of people have a lot of ideas and they want to make sure that you know their ideas and that still happens to this day. Bree and I, we're not even pregnant yet we, and we already have a lot of ideas that people give us. Some of those ideas are good and some are not so good, but it's just funny how things never change. So verse 62, And they made signs to his father inquiring, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid laid them in, her, in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And we know what this child would be. We know that John would live a life to serve God. He would live and die to prepare the way for the Lord. What an honor for him to be able to do that. And nobody... His parents were nobodies. And he is able to be this, to be a great man, a servant for the Lord. And now in a different way, you and I, we are also called to prepare a way for the Lord. John, he was called to a very specific ministry, but in a different way, we are called to tell people about Christ. We're called to share the gospel with them. We, we are called to be humble servants who show Christ through all of our attitudes, through every, everything that we do. And this is our mission now. We are to be messengers of the gospel. God could have used so many other things to do this. He could have used angels to share the gospel with people. And that would be a lot more convincing than us. He could have used prophets to do that. He could have used anything to do that. But he chose to use you and me to share the gospel, to prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Lord into their hearts. And why is he doing that? To show us that he is the one that does the work. That when someone is saved, he is the one that used us. His Holy Spirit in us was the one that, that produced faith in their hearts, and that changed them, and that, that caused them to be believers as well. And what a privilege it is for us that we are called to be used by God. We, ordinary people, regular people, are called to be part of God's plan. Friends, these people here, they were not perfect. We, see, we saw them failing. They were not extraordinary. They were not famous. They were just regular people living a normal life. They were not popular. They were not rich. They were not super smart, super educated. They were the least likely people to make an impact in the world. But they had an extraordinary God that loves to use ordinary people like you and me to accomplish His plan. And we are, we are normal people, but we have an extraordinary God with us. And we have an extraordinary message that can help other people out there that are still pursuing their own greatness. They're still living for other things that are not for the Lord. They still don't know that true greatness 
is being a servant. And if you want to be great before the Lord, if you want to be great in a way that really matters for eternity, these are some things that we are gonna we're gonna do. We will not live for our own greatness, but we will live a life of selfless service. That is something that needs to characterize who we are. People, when they think of us, do they think about a servant? Do they think about someone who loves who loves to serve? We will trust in God and we will rest in God. We will rest in what He has done to take away our reproach. We will desire Him and we will rejoice in Him. We will worship Him and we will share His gospel with people. We will have an attitude similar to that of John. One of the, one of the phrases that John said that is the most known, the most common that people remember that he said was this. I must decrease that he might increase through me. And if we want to be great before the Lord, that is the attitude that we need to have. To be small that he might be great through us. And we can only do this if we rely on an extraordinary God. We cannot do this on our own strength. We cannot do this because of our own accomplishments, because of our own talents. We can only do this if we rely on an extraordinary God who loves to use ordinary people for His purposes. Let's pray. Father, we praise You because You used this ordinary family as part of Your plan to send Christ to us. And we praise you because you love to use ordinary people, us, to accomplish your plan. And Father, help us to always remember that being used by you as a servant is a privilege. And help us to, to live as joyful servants, to serve with joy, to stop trying to, to be great people living for our own greatness, to be great in the eyes of the world, but to pursue greatness before you to be selfless servants and lord may you be glorified to through us today and in every day of our lives in jesus name amen